Father, our desperate plea is to hear your voice from 1 Samuel 26 through 28. We need you to open our eyes that we may see. Open our ears that we may hear. Open our minds that we may understand. And open our hearts that we may receive. Feed us with your word. Lead us unto truth. Despite our rebellion against you, our disinterest in you, the wonder of your love still seeks us. The creator seeks the creature. The lovely seeks the unlovely. The righteous seeks the unrighteous. Father, with our Bibles open before us, we humbly pray for the enabling of the Holy Spirit to listen. We believe this particular story is unlike any other ancient writing. This is not merely good literature. This is God literature. It's your literature addressed to us. We believe this text carries the full weight of your authority. It would not be any more authoritative if you were present in this place and we heard it from your very lips. Now help us to receive it as such. In the beautiful name of Christ, we make this petition. Amen. We have been expositionally walking through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. We are nearing the end. Today, we are in week 16, covering chapters 26, 27, and 28. When you're preaching narratives, you take bigger chunks because you have to follow the plot line. Because the plot line covers three chapters today, settle in. We're going to be here for a while. <laughs> when we do exposition, we are doing textual surgery. We're operating on three chapters today. We will walk through three chapters and then walk home with three takeaways. No sermon points. We're just going to follow the narrative through the three chapters. Then once we've done the proper work of exegesis, we can come with some pointed takeaways. Walk through three chapters. Walk home with three takeaways. I've titled this exposition, Sleeping Pills, A Hundred-Year War, and A Seance with a Witch. The title will work as a guide to lead you through the three chapters. When you begin reading chapter 26, you experience a bit of deja vu. This uncanny feeling you've experienced this event before. Like you've read this story previously. Well, that's because you have. Same story, different time. The Ziphites, the traitors, the rats, the snitches do what they do best. They narc on David. Uh, hey, hey, Saul, we found David again. He, he popped out of his hiding place. He's been like a little prairie dog hiding in a complex network of tunnels. But he finally came up for air and we saw him. We know his exact GPS coordinates. Saul sends out a massive group text to his 3,000 specially trained elite soldiers. It's go time. These special op Israeli soldiers head to the desert where David and his 600 men have been spotted. They're working with precision through, through these networks of prairie dog tunnels. Now, David's 600 men are not elite forces. Remember, they are 600 homeless men. 600 ragtag rejects facing 3,000 specially trained ninjas. This doesn't seem to be a fair fight. But Saul doesn't care. You mess with the bull, you get the horns. David's men knew the honeycombed hills. And they knew desert warfare. David sends a, a small group to do reconnaissance. They find Saul and his men sleeping in the dead of night. They somehow, through the darkness, find their way back to David and report the news. David says, I don't want all 600 of us to go. I just want to. I'll be the first. Who's going to be the second? I'll go, said one young man. Abishai was his name. 
He's David's nephew. One of three sons born to David's sister. Verse 7. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment. With his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. King Saul sleeps at the center of the camp. This is the safest place. You can't get to the center without waking everyone else up. The encampment was laid out in a big ring with common soldiers, the human shields, sleeping on the outmost ring, the captains of 50 sleeping in the next ring, the captains of 200 in the next ring, the generals in the next ring, and finally King Saul in the center. They formed what you might say were human tripwires. Saul slept with his spear at his head. This was a safety measure like sleeping with a pistol on your nightstand. David and his nephew Abishai infiltrate the camp. Walking through with their night vision goggles, they avoid all the human tripwires and make it to the heart of the encampment. They find Saul. He's sleeping. Right next to him is Abner. Saul's number two man. Verse 8 picks up the story. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice. <laughs> What's crazy is that they've maneuvered with incredible stealth. Then right when they're over Saul, they hold a conversation. Even if they're whispering, this isn't the wisest thing to do. Do your battle planning before you set out on your mission. Young Abishai, full of ambition and zeal, says, Hey, uncle. Hey, unk. I'm going to kill Saul. I'm the consummate professional. I know how to do this with one stroke. I know how to do this without waking anyone up in the camp. One slice will do it. Believe me. I won't need a second. David hears those words, words and then looks at Saul's spear. He has memories with that spear. After David killed Goliath, Saul became jealous and on a few occasions attempted to put that spear through David's head while David played the harp. He tried to pin him to the wall and now is David's chance to pin him to the earth. Same language runs throughout both accounts, pinning. Verse 9, but David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can, put out, who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. The Lord will pin him. Or his day will come to die. Or he will go down into battle and perish. In other words, nephew, don't you dare hurt King Saul. Don't you lay a hand on God's anointed. You can't do that and think you can get away with it. Only God has the wisdom to know what a person deserves. David is confident that God will fight for him. God will bring justice to Saul either by making him die an early death or die of old age or die in battle. God can take him. God can take him either in an untimely death or a natural death or a death by enemy sword. Either way, I will not put him to death. David doesn't operate by blood. He operates by promise. Verse 11. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. You know how people have a glass of water on their nightstand. David tells his nephew, take the water and the spear and... Let's make like a banana and split. I was going over these with my kids, these sayings. I can only imagine the pushback from Abishai. I risked my life for a bottle of Aquafina and a dagger. And, and, and there must have been some major back and forth arguing because David told his nephew to grab it, but the next verse says David did it himself. Maybe Abishai refused. Maybe David just thought better. I, I don't want you holding a spear that close to sleeping Saul. I'll get it myself. 
It's comical that they have a little frustrated debate right over sleeping Saul. <laughs> but Unc, I want to kill him. Listen, nephew, this is grown folk business. Shut your mouth. It's getting heated. They wake any of the 3,000 soldiers and they are done for. They are dead meat. They are dead men walking. How did they not wake anyone? 3,000 men all sleeping and snoring. Not one awake. Not one was up using the bathroom in the middle of the night. Not one had a bad dream and woke up in a sweat. Not one was having trouble sleeping so he was watching YouTube channels. Those odds are just wild. They are all comatose. Well, verse 12 reveals the secret. God had given them all Tylenol PM. The text says in verse 12b, they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. God mastered sleep aids long before we discovered them. And this language is its ringing bells for me. Like I've heard it before. God made a deep sleep fall on them. Yes. Yes, I have heard that. He did the same in the Garden of Eden with Adam. This night, not a soul saw, not a soul knew. No one woke up because a blanket of deep sleep from God had fallen on them. God prescribed sleeping pills. Verse 13. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner the son of Ner saying, Will you not answer Abner? Then Abner said, Who are you who calls to the king? David becomes the army's alarm clock, their rooster, their wake-up call. Hey Abner! Hey, big, strong bodyguard Abner, it's time to rise and shine, sleepyhead. Did you have sweet dreams, little Sally? David begins talking smack. I could just see Abner jumping up in a hurry, attempting to grab his sword. If I were David, I would have tied his shoelaces together. My mom used to do that to us and scream fire. And then watch us as we fell and bloodied our face. She was a loving mother. Verse 15. And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? <laughs> I love that. Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your Lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your Lord. Aren't you in charge over there? You're not elite. You're supposed to be the number two. You don't deserve to live. You failed to keep watch. Saul is waking up by this time, hearing all the conversation and, and recognizes David's voice and says, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, O king. And David begins to plead with Saul like he's done so many times before. Why are you trying to kill me, Saul? I've done no evil against you. Are you going to, to kill me out here and leave me for the scorpions? I don't want to die outside of God's land. I don't want my blood spilled here. No Hebrew does. You're the king of Israel obsessed with a single flea. Hunting me down like one does a partridge. A partridge was a collar bird. A bird that didn't like to fly but ran along the ground when it was threatened. Saul responds, David, I... I can't believe you didn't kill me when you had the chance. I've acted a fool. I've been a real clown. Forgive me, David. Come on over here and let's hug it out. I will no longer seek to kill you, I promise. It's interesting, in the verses, Saul admits more of his guilt than he's ever done before. Is it genuine? Time will tell. David doesn't seem to believe him. He basically says, save your breath and your empty promises. David allows one of Saul's young men to come over and retrieve the spear. He kept the bottle of Aquafina. Verse 25. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. 
You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. This is the last meeting between these competing anointed ones. These are the last words Saul will ever speak to David. Something happened between chapter 26 and 27 that I'm going to be honest with you, I just can't quite figure out. In chapter 26, David is firm in his faith. In chapter 27, David is wavering in his faith. It seems like David begins to lose faith in his God in chapter 27. He's been so faith-filled, but here he seems so fear-filled. David has lived through thrilling escapes in the desert, daring escapades, high blood pressure moments, all with confidence in his God. But suddenly in chapter 27, he's popping in acids and sweating and focusing on what could happen, what could go wrong. He ceased to live in the present and now lives in the future. Chapter 27, verse 1. Then David, mark these next four words, said in his heart. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. Church, David is preaching to his heart. Your heart needs sermons. Your heart needs preaching to. And here's what David preaches to his heart. Heart, sooner or later, Saul is going to get me. He's going to search every nook and cranny in Israel until he puts a sword through my chest. The only way I can end this pathological game of hide and seek is to flee to Gath. Flee to enemy territory. would, Would you write this phrase down? Same danger, new doubt. Same danger, new doubt. This is the same danger that David's faced before. There's been no real change. Saul didn't double the size of his army. It's still 3,000 strong. Saul didn't get new informants. It's always been the Ziphites. There's been no real change. More importantly, there's been no change in God. The only thing that's changed is the message David is preaching to his own heart. David preached gospel hope to his heart all the times before this. And we know that because we have evidence of it in the fugitive Psalms. Here, David is still preaching to his heart, but it's no longer informed by the character of God. His message is no longer informed by the promises of God. He is no longer operating by promise. Never once does David mention God in this chapter. This is a godless chapter. This is a a time when David is not seeking God, not crying out to God. There are no psalms credited to this period in his life. We do not have one song written by David from this time. The singer has lost his song. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, medical doctor turned pastor, He's one of our pastors, Daniel Herbster's dead mentor. Lloyd-Jones said, when you start listening to yourself, instead of preaching to yourself, you are in trouble. Alistair Begg said, David is allowing the questions which press in upon him to overturn his conviction that God is sufficient. Dale Ralph Davis writes with a blunt and yet perceptive pen on this scene. He says, all of us talk to ourselves. We deliver propaganda to our souls. How crucial it is to feed our souls with true propaganda, especially about the adequacy of our God. Like the farmer who said, soul, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Eat, drink, and be merry. The junk you feed your heart can make all the difference in the world. 
There are days in the faith walk when your mind has to inform your heart. You have to preach to your heart. You must correct your heart. Your heart is a simpleton and will react. It will behave how it's instructed to behave. David is counseling his heart with unbelieving words. A.W. Pink, or as we call him in the South, A.W. Pink. You see, Pink, Pink. Maybe that's just a North Carolina thing. A.W. Pink said, When unbelief dominates us, God is forgotten and his deliverances. Develop the discipline to preach true propaganda to your souls. Give your heart gospel promises. My God has not forsaken me. There has been nothing in his character that has changed. There is no evidence that God has deserted me. All of you that have been redeemed by the Lamb, that's what you should be preaching to yourself. That's what David should have been preaching to himself. To doubt the loving kindness of God is thought by some to be a small sin. It is not. The junk you tell yourself can mess up your life. Church, you must be careful not to yield to despondency. One commentator says David has been a fugitive for seven years by this point. My math has it a little more like nine years. God commanded David to go to the wilderness through the prophet Gad, but never commanded for David to leave the wilderness and go to Gath. David is now acting contrary to God's command. He looks to Philistia rather than Yahweh for his protection. Chapter 27, verse 2. So David arose and went over. That's literally crossed over. This is hinting at more than geography. David crossed over. He and the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. The, the king of Gath has no doubt heard of David's years of running from Saul. And he's more than happy to give sanctuary to David and his ragtag warriors, especially if they commit their allegiance to his causes. And they do. Not only did David's faith in God's promise waver, but now he's compromising his identity. He's going to live among the pagan Philistines. He used to kill the God blasphemers. Now he's having them over for dinner. Dabbing them up, talking like they talk, wearing what they wear. There are no temples of God in this territory. When David said hello to Philistine territory, he said goodbye to sacrifices and goodbye to worship of Yahweh. Seven to nine years is a long time on the run. I I understand. That's a long time to feed an army of 600 people. Oh, and and by the way, it's not just 600. For the first time in our story, the author informs us in verse 3 that women and children are with the group as well. If each man had a a wife and, and they each had at least one child, some have two, possibly three, we're talking about two to three thousand people David is responsible for feeding, protecting, and providing shelter for. That's going to wear on you after a while. The logistics of safety and the stress of providing for such a large group will drive a man insane. Not literally insane, but you know it adds stress. Speaking of insane, remember David took a short trip to Gath once before and only escaped by his Academy Award winning performance feigning insanity. Remember when the king said, I don't need more insane people. We've met our quota of crazy around here. Let David go. Years have passed now. David was by himself then. David comes with rogue soldiers now. He's useful now. He can bring something to the table now. 
David's plan to take flight beyond the borders of Israel had its intended effect. Verse 4. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, Saul no longer sought David. It worked. I mean, for the first time in years, David isn't looking over his shoulder. Now, if I were this Philistine king, I would not have trusted David. He killed Goliath, their champion, years ago. And he's killed ten thousands of them, as the song says. But David does appear to be a turncoat now, so he's welcomed by the king of Gath. Verse 5. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns, that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? David grew up in the country. He doesn't necessarily care for city life. So he goes to the Philistine king and he asks him to grant a little town out in the country for him and his 600 men and all the women and children. We're taking up too much space in your royal city, king. And I I know you're taking a lot of heat because Goliath's kids and grandkids still live here. Maybe it's best if you move me. David diplomatically approaches the matter. We will always be here if you, if you need us for a battle. And we will report to you weekly. The king was happy to get rid of the two to 3,000 people. They were straining the food and water supply in the city. So that day, Achis gave David Ziklag. Ziklag was a good 25 miles away. Ziklag was originally allotted to the tribe of Israel when God's people inherited the land. But eventually, the Philistines took it over. Ziklag was now a town that bordered Israel. David sets up his isolated base of operations there. David lived in the Philistine territory for 16 months. The Philistines and Israel are currently in a battle, a war. They've been in a war since before David was born and before Saul was born. They are in like a 70 or more year war with the Philistines. The whole war lasted over a century. The longest wars we've ever known in the States are are like, what, 20 years in Afghanistan, 19 years in Vietnam, World War I was less than two years. We don't know century-long wars. Israel and the Philistines were living it. David pulling a Benedict Arnold on Israel would have sent shockwaves throughout the known world. David being granted a city in enemy territory would have been shocking front page news. Maybe comparable to if Robert E. Lee left the South during the Civil War and was granted a northern city. Or during the, for you theologians, or during the East Coast, West Coast rap battles in the 90s. This would be like Biggie Smalls inheriting a city in Cali. A city of good old Watts. No way. West side till we die. Tupac would not stand for that. Now, now that uh, I can see that just some of you didn't grow up like I did. (laughs) Now, David is not under constant surveillance of the Philistines' king. He's 25 miles away and he becomes a desert raider. He attacks the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites and steals their cattle, clothes, and tools. These people were long-term inhabitants of the land and often enemies of Israel. Because of this fact, some commentators believe David redeemed his time in Philistine territory by attacking Israel's enemies who were at times attacking them. I don't hold to that. I think that's trying to beautify the David story. I don't think this is fulfilling God's command that he gave Israel when they first entered the promised land. This is not a God-ordained band. I'm sorry, Matthew Henry and some others. I'm not on board with that. I think David is an all-out sin here. He is pillaging these villages and killing all the men, all the women, all the children. According to verse 9 and verse 11, David never left a single person alive lest one show up in Gath and report to the king 
what he had been, what he really had been doing. See, David is telling the king of Gath that he's fighting Israelites. Verse 10. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? So the king wants to know the military activity of his vassal. David would say against the Negeb of Judah. Or against the Negeb of the Jeremalites. Or against the Negeb of the Kenites. He's lying to the king by saying he's raiding against the Israelites. The Bible does not airbrush David. We have him warts and all. David's duplicitous activity has placed him in more compromising situations. Verse 11 says this was David's custom. It was his policy. The way he operated for over a year. He's living a lie for over a year. The Philistine's enemy is Saul. Saul's enemy is David. I guess the king of Gath figured the enemy of my enemy is my friend. The king of Gath is is confident in David's loyalty. So confident that he made him his personal bodyguard for life. David's deceit and deception puts him in a dangerous and compromising position. The long war with the Philistines is about to have another battle. 1 Samuel 28 verse 1. In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David, the time has come for you to keep your word. We're going to go to battle, and I want you to go with us and war against your people. Verse 2, David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. Now, the battle. Are you ready to hear what happens at this battle? Well, you're not going to hear it today. The author just chops off the story right there. The Philistines are traveling to their war position, and Israel is already in their war position. But we aren't going to see the battle today. What we're going to see is what Saul does while he waits for the battle to begin. The Philistines are on the horizon. Their army is mounting. In the presence of this imposing military force bearing down on him, Saul is taken with fear. He's greatly trembling, the text says. He's shaking in his boots. So Saul does something he hasn't done in a long time. He seeks the Lord. Verse 6, And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Oh, Saul. Oh, Saul, now you want to use Urim worn by the priest. Well, you killed 65 of them. Oh, now you want to hear from a prophet. You never listened to them before. Saul can hear the shouts of the Philistines, but he cannot hear the voice of God. Saul has completely miscalculated the consequences of his actions. God refuses to speak to Saul. The lack of divine guidance in Saul's life was his own fault. In Amos, God says he will no longer reveal his word to those who have rejected his prophetic word. Can you imagine knowing the reality that you are deserted by God? Saul is feeling it. He's so desperate to hear from God that it leads to one of the strangest and most sordid events found in the Bible. Begins in verse 7. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his assistant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. Now I didn't read verse 3 of this chapter because it was a flashback, but, but in it, it revealed that Saul had previously purged the land of mediums. That's what God commanded Israel to do in Deuteronomy 18. When you enter the promised land, put a ban on divination, fortune tellers, omens, sorcerers, charmers, those who communicate with the dead. 
Saul swept the country clean of occult practices. If one was found guilty, he would receive the death penalty. Now Saul wants to find someone who communicates with the dead, but the problem is he ran all of them out of the territory. However, his men, with no hesitation, know right where to find one. Maybe she escaped the purge. Verse 8, So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went. He and two men with him. His friends. Saul would have had to skirt the camp of the Philistines. Not a smart move to skirt the camp of the Philistines in kingly robes. So he puts on common attire. It's an 8 to 10 mile journey over difficult terrain. Especially during the night. Saul knew he was breaking the command of God. Whenever you wear a disguise to do something, it's probably a bad sign. Sin does not like light. It does not like bright, open spaces. Redberg says it likes cold, dark corners. Saul finds his cold, dark corner in, chapter, in, in verse 8b. They came to the woman by night and Saul said, Divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. This woman hesitates by reminding her visitor of Saul's prohibition against this type of behavior. She has no idea it's actually Saul in front of her. Although he's a tall man, head and shoulders above everyone else. She says, are you sure this isn't a setup? Are you laying a trap for my life? Maybe she thinks this man is an undercover agent of the king. She suspects a trap and fears the death penalty. Saul assured her, as God lives, you won't get in any trouble for this. You just conjure me up a spirit. And the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. The king of Israel, the king of God's people, is about to be in a seance with the witch of Endor. He's desperate to know what will happen tomorrow on the battlefield with the Philistines. His desperation turns to divination. He wants to speak with Samuel, the prophet, priest, and judge who anointed him king in the first place. But Samuel's dead. Verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice and the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. Whatever this woman saw when she conjured up Samuel made her shriek. She screeches and immediately knows the disguised man is King Saul. Verse 13, the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed his face to the ground and paid homage. Here again, we see the robe imagery that is so prominent throughout the book. Samuel was robed like a priest. Saul had seen that robe before. He tore the bottom of it once when Samuel walked away. And Samuel told Saul at that moment, your kingdom will be torn from you just as you tore my robe. What an, artist, what an artistic touch by God to carry the robe theme throughout. I wonder if Saul asked, is the man's robe ripped at the bottom? Verse 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, <laughs> dead man talking here. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, and the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophet or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. Saul here gives one breathless run-on sentence to answer Samuel. 
He just word vomits on Samuel. But Samuel is unmoved by Saul's show of submission and humility. And Samuel said, why do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Saul is not receiving a new word. This is an old word. Saul has been told for years that he's done as king. But he keeps holding on and fighting God on it. Saul was hoping Samuel would reverse the judgment. But Samuel only reinforces it. This is not how Saul envisioned this thing playing out. Samuel goes on to tell Saul, You want to know what will happen tomorrow? You will lose that battle. The Philistines will win and you will die. You and your three sons. You've got 24 hours to live. Saul fell on his face to the ground. He had no strength left in him. He's dehydrated. He's got the shakes. He's coming in and out of consciousness. The witch says, Saul, it's your turn to do what I tell you. Let me give you some food and eat it. It will give you strength so you can get on your way. I risk my life for you. At least you can eat something for me so you don't die in my living room and, and you wait until tomorrow when Samuel says you will die. Saul's two men, his friends that accompanied him, joined in with the request, Eat, master. You must eat something, king. Verse 24. This is wild. And the woman had a fattened calf in the house. And she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants and they ate. Then they rose and went out that night. The witch prepared a meal fit for a king. For a man who wasn't fit to be the king. It would have taken several hours to accomplish the slaughtering, the butchering, and the cooking. After receiving bad news from beyond the grave, Saul eats his last meal and then leaves at night. I walked through three chapters. Now I want you to walk into your home with three takeaways. Takeaway number one. What are we supposed to do with all the witchcraft in this text? What are we supposed to do with all the witchcraft in this text? Well, we must realize that spiritual desperation can be misdirected. Why do people visit mediums? Why might one want to contact the dead? These might be well-meaning people who miss the dead. Want to speak to the dead. In other words, desperate for the presence of a lost one. They may also be desperate for a word of assurance. So they read horoscopes, play Ouija boards, or go to a fortune teller. We must realize that spiritual desperation can be misdirected. Also, we must never trivialize the occult nor do we solicit information from them. We must never trivialize the occult, nor do we solicit information from them. Many fortune tellers and mediums are nothing more than frauds, charlatans. They create an atmosphere where people feel strange sensations and they take advantage of needy people by trickery. But when the Bible forbids all things surrounding the occult, it's not forbidding it because it's a hoax. It doesn't forbid it because it's all hocus pocus. It forbids it because it's real. And it's spiritually dangerous and destructive. It distracted Israel from God's word delivered by the priests and the prophets. God tells his children to stay away. Not because it's fake but because it's wicked. When someone promises 
that they can communicate to a loved one from beyond the grave. You should realize that you aren't speaking to the dead. You're speaking to a demon. Disguising himself as that person. If your loved one was not a Christian. When you're thrown into hell, you can't come back and have conversations. If your loved one was a Christian. When you're in the presence of God, you don't want to come back and have a conversation. Plus, earth has no power over heaven. No one on earth can command anything of people in heaven. Simply, church, we are not ever to consult the dead or solicit any information from the occult. Now that leads us to this question. Did the witch of Endor really bring back Samuel? Or was it a a demon disguised as Samuel? Some of the ancients, Justin Martyr, Origen, the North African church theologian Augustine, believed it was actually Samuel. Other ancients, Tertullian and Jerome, believed it was a dialogical delusion, a a diabolical delusion, a a demon. Uh, John Calvin and Martin Luther didn't believe it was Samuel either. None of these believed a witch could call back a prophet. And so you're asking, where, where do you stand on this? I think it was Samuel. I don't think the witch brought Samuel back. I think God did. Five reasons. One, the witch screamed when she saw Samuel. Whatever happened, she wasn't used to seeing it. It wasn't normal for her. Now, does this mean she was a charlatan? Maybe. Two, Samuel spoke directly to Saul and not through a medium. Did you notice that? Three, Saul recognized Samuel and bowed in respect. The Bible text refers to him as Samuel three times. Four, the message from the dead mirrored God's message to Saul from the prophets. Same message. Fifthly, this is not the only example we have of this in Scripture. God brought back Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration to bolster the faith of Peter, James, and John. So to summarize, it was not the skill of the medium, rather the unique act of God that brought Samuel back. Samuel came back not at the command of a witch, but at the will of God. Not by some magical arts, but by the omnipotence of God. As Alistair Begg pointed out, do not allow your curiosity to destroy the clarity of the main teaching of this passage. God was preparing a line for the Messiah to come through. It's it's a David line, and God's doing some miraculous things to bring about his Messiah into the world. That's my long takeaway. The other takeaways are shorter. Takeaway number two. What would you do if you knew you only had 24 hours to live? That's what Saul finds out in our story. He has 24 hours to live. (laughs) You would think he would spend those 24 hours repenting and calling out to God for salvation. No, that doesn't happen. Which confirms the New Testament teaching that though someone from the dead be brought up to you, you still would not repent. Remember the rich man and Lazarus parable? If you do not listen to Moses and the prophets, that's the Bible. If you do not listen to the Bible, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Saul has an appointment with death. And so do you. Have you been washed by the blood? Are your sins forgiven? Have you repented and trusted only in the work of Christ? Do you have assurance of your salvation? No doubt. Rock solid. If not, that's a problem. Seek out a pastor here and we would love to walk this out with you. I do want to be clear, we aren't the guardians of salvation. We can't dispense it. But if you have concerns, 
Those aren't natural. Those are supernatural. Pursue. Be obedient to that Holy Spirit nudge. Take away number three. We ask this question anytime we're in an Old Testament text. How does this text point to Jesus Christ? We witness Saul's last meal. His last supper. The text is almost giving us an anti-last supper. King Saul sat down to his last supper. 3,000 years later, King Jesus sat down to his last supper. Saul ate meat and bread. Jesus ate meat and bread. Saul ate with friends. Jesus ate with friends. Saul ate a meal and left at night. Jesus ate a meal and left at night. Saul left the Last Supper and failed as Israel's king. He did not give God's people what they needed. But there's another king who left the Last Supper and came through for God's people by providing for them victory in a much longer war. Not against the Philistines, but against sin and death. Glory be to this king. Let's stand. Father, what a text. What a text. Each week, your word just comes alive. And that is the result of your spirit doing work in us. And so we do not want to take it for granted. Empty words. Empty sermons, unless you bring it to life in the hearts of your people. We love your word because it reveals your character to us. You are good, Lord. We've seen it once again in your book. Church, let's sing together. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.